Good morning and welcome, and the committee will come to order. Last Wednesday, the House Select Committee on Intelligence called a hearing. They wanted to talk about the proliferation of commercial spyware. Ms. Kanimba, you are now recognized for your opening remarks. My name is Corinne Kanimba. I am the youngest of six children of Tassiana and Paul Rousseau-Savagina. The name might ring a bell. Don Cheadle played him in the movie Hotel Rwanda. My name is Paul Rousseau-Savagina. I am the house manager of the most luxurious hotel in the capital of Rwanda. The most luxurious hotel back then was Mille Colline. And it's famous because it's where more than 1,200 Tutsi took refuge during the 1994 genocide. Outside the hotel walls, machete-wielding militias killed some 800,000 Rwandans in under 100 days. Paul Rusesabagina risked his life to make sure that the people taking shelter inside the hotel all survived. It is not like anything I've ever seen in 30 years as a reporter. It is, I think, the standard against which all future tragedies will be measured. Recessa Bagina's defiance during the genocide isn't exactly what brought Corrine to Capitol Hill last week. It's what her father did years afterwards. My father was given a platform, and he used it for good. He was critical of the increasing violations of human rights of Rwandans. In other words, he was critical of the government of Rwandan President Paul Kagame. And the fact that a world-famous human rights ambassador like Karine's dad was openly criticizing the president, well, that didn't sit well with authorities in Kigali. Rosessa Pagina eventually fled, first to Belgium and then to the U.S. And that might have been the end of it had it not been for an ill-fated trip he took to East Africa. In August 2020, Karine's dad boarded a chartered jet he thought was taking him to Burundi. And it wasn't until the plane doors opened that he realized he had landed in Rwanda. He actually started to scream and thinking that perhaps the pilot would hear him scream very loudly and come out and help him. In fact, the pilot of, of the plane uh, came out and wished him good luck as he was being dragged out of the plane. President Kagame has a long history of silencing his critics. When I was in Rwanda reporting for a book I was writing back in 2003, I saw soldiers break up campaign rallies for the opposition. Political opponents talked about constant death threats. Kagame's critics had this way of disappearing. So having Rosessa Bagina suddenly find himself rendered back to Rwanda, it was part of a much larger pattern. After a very short trial, the government sentenced him to 25 years in prison. And Corrine started a very public global campaign to get him released, which appears to have made her a target too. Though in her case, instead of an elaborate kidnapping, she found herself on the receiving end of a state-of-the-art threat, a kind of spyware called Pegasus. Everyone in my house at home, when they come into our home, they're so worried about Pegasus now that we just put everyone's phones in the microwave. I don't know why it makes people feel safer, but <laughs> it does. It's the brainchild of an Israeli company called NSO Group, and it has this uncanny ability to turn any phone into a spy. It can be turned on remotely to secretly listen to all your conversations, read all your texts, and track exactly where you are. Kareen, now a U.S. citizen, testified on Capitol Hill about that. She's living proof of an increasing threat to the world, commercial spyware. Now you no longer need an intelligence service to do sophisticated surveillance, you just need the money to pay for it. We are looking at a slide back towards 
autocracy and authoritarianism around the world. And in my mind, Spiral Like Pegasus is kerosene to the flame. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, Kareen's story, the commercial spyware business, and what it all means for a company at the center of it all, NSO. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Every year, the Human Rights Foundation has a big conference called the Oslo Freedom Forum. Think of it as a kind of human rights festival, a chance for people who want to overthrow tyrannies to meet people who already have. That's basically how they advertise it on YouTube. Let us rise up against tyranny. We want a world where people can speak freely. Today, I would like you to join the cause, and I want you to join our revolution. And earlier this year, a cybersecurity watchdog group set up a booth at a conference. And instead of handing out stickers and tote bags, they offered an unusual service, a free check of your phone for spyware. It's never pleasant to receive news that you've been hacked. It's like receiving a bad diagnosis. John Scott Railton is a senior researcher at Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. And he was one of the people at that booth. So we have developed approaches that allow us to do fairly rapid checks of devices without uh, invading the person's privacy too much. Okay, so you kind of have like the rapid COVID test of Pegasus? That's exactly how we describe it. And then if we find something of interest, then we're going to go do the PCR. And when John did the PCR test on Kareen's phone, it came back positive. Um, this was shocking, of course, because I thought that American numbers could not be targeted. The NSO group has said publicly that it doesn't track U.S. phone numbers, but traces of spyware appeared on Kareen's U.S. phone anyway, and it had been there for a while. They discovered that he had actually been inter- uh, infected in September of 2020, so that is just about a month after my father had been kidnapped. I think it was a confirmation of something that she had suspected, um, which was they were even more intensely targeted than they already knew. Karine is sure the Rwandan government has put NSO's Pegasus spyware on her phone. Do we know for a fact that the Kagame government is a client of NSO? This is a really good question. I think we know a lot of reporting around this case. We certainly see strong circumstantial evidence pointing in this direction. Obviously, the government has denied it. But it's par for the course that governments typically deny that they're customers of this kind of technology. Which is exactly what the Rwandan government did. 
That's Rwanda's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Vincent Baruda. Stating the use of a certain spyware by Rwanda. I would like to reiterate here that Rwanda doesn't use this software system. We don't possess that technical capability in any form. But if perhaps they were using it, it could be very helpful in allowing them to listen in on private meetings between someone like Corrine and foreign officials who might have been talking with her about her father's imprisonment in Rwanda, which is exactly what the forensics on her phone suggest happened. We were able to match it with meetings that we had with government officials around the world. And one very shocking example is in June of 2021, I walked into a meeting with the Belgian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sophie Wilmes, in her office. Um, the moment I walked in until the moment I walked out of her office about an hour and a half later, the software was active. So Pegasus likely was listening in. It's that good. When we come back, the fate of the ubiquitous spyware's parent company, the NSO Group. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. When there's a software as potentially damaging as Pegasus, whoever owns it holds a lot of power. Right now, that power is in the hands of the NSO Group, which is essentially an arm of the Israeli government. So when news started popping up a few months ago that the NSO group had a buyer that would put Pegasus in the hands of a U.S. company, the intelligence community started buzzing. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. A company with a large presence here in Rochester, L3 Harris Harris executives made numerous visits to Israel in order to secretly negotiate the deal. Well, there's always reporting about somebody interested in acquiring NSO. That's Citizen Lab's John Scott Railton again. This seems to be a perennial thing, and I think sometimes it may be real, and sometimes it may be something that NSO tells its investors and anybody who will listen. Again, I was at a funeral of all places last spring in Washington, where people were whispering about this potential sale. And then I heard from defense contractors in the intelligence community that the U.S. buyers didn't really want NSO. They just wanted Pegasus. As John Scott Railton makes clear, there are lots of versions of the NSO sales story out there. The New York Times had one version of the story, which is chunks of the intelligence community were favorable to this. And then the Washington Post and The Guardian and others had a different version of the story, which is, although there may have been some low-level positive feeling towards this, this was not something that was viewed positively at a high level. People I spoke to said the confusion may be purposeful. The intelligence community may have floated multiple versions of the story to see how it would play. I'm not really sure where the truth lies. What is clear is that at this point, NSO is pretty toxic. The Commerce Department has blacklisted it. In a statement, NSO told Click Here that civil society groups like Citizen Lab aren't balanced in their assessments of Pegasus, and that the software program has a lot of positive uses, too. And NSO added that it investigates every claim of misuse 
though they didn't say was investigating Corrine's case. The NSO group has assured people Pegasus wouldn't be sold to private entities who might use it for malicious or petty reasons. If you don't like your neighbor, you want to check on that new boyfriend, they promise not to provide spyware for that. They say they sell it only to governments. But it's become clear that governments aren't always using it for benevolent purposes either. Almost every week, there are fresh examples of its use against democratic institutions around the world. And if you find Pegasus on your phone, what do you do? Corrine's solution is to just throw her phones away. Uh, after I learned that Pegasus was on my phone, I got rid of my other phone, and we were feeling safe. But it turns out they didn't even need her phone. In July, Citizen Lab discovered that her cousin Jean-Paul, who's working with her to get her dad freed, had his phone infected with Pegasus too. We're shaken again because we realized that at a moment where we felt safer, at a moment where we felt that somehow our, our communications were safe, our location was safe, our emails were safe, they were not at all. And in fact, they were following everything they were, we were doing. So it's almost like they used the two of us to ensure that they would always know what we were up to. Had you ever heard of spyware before this all happened? N well, not in this way. I mean, in movies <laughs> and uh, my, my uh, knowledge of, of spies and spywares. I know that the Rwandan government uses methods, illegal methods, to silence critics, right? So the possibility that they were using a spyware to try to track us, we knew of that possibility, but we just never thought that they would actually waste their resources on following two kids but they did. And of course, to someone like Corrine and her cousin, it isn't just about privacy. Rwanda is also a case where some of the people who've been targeted with this or potentially selected for targeting with this have also faced extremely serious physical threats as well. And while digital technology has been transforming diaspora communities, allowing them to stay engaged with people back home and sometimes encouraging dissent from abroad, Autocrats are using that same technology to reach across borders, to intimidate those critics. And increasingly, they have more tools to do that. While Pegasus may be the commercial spyware that everyone seems to be talking about, Google's threat analysis group says it's tracking at least 30 other versions of it. What I really strongly believe is that NSO and its ilk represent a twin threat to U.S. national security and foreign policy, but also to human rights. Which is partly what motivated these congressional hearings last week. People like John Scott Railton want lawmakers to rein commercial spyware in. They can do it by sending chilling signals to the investors that back the spyware marketplace. And they can also do it by making sure that spyware companies are held accountable for what they're doing and that problem companies aren't able to escape responsibility. And Kareen wants that too. But mostly... She just wants her dad back. My thanks and admiration for Ms. Kanimba. Your story is extraordinary. That's Democratic Congressman Sean Maloney of New York at last week's hearing. And I, I want to ask you um, what actions, if any, the U.S. government is not taking that you'd like it to take. Um, so I just want my father home. Um, I hope the U.S. government will do everything possible to bring him home before it's too late. Can you see a scenario in which your father would be released? Yes, absolutely. My father will come home, and my father has never lost hope. 
you know, during the Rwandan genocide, um, he had every reason to lose hope. People were being butchered to death around the hotel. And he never lost hope during those 75 days that he kept everyone safe in the hotel. And we will not lose hope either. And so my goal is for Kagame to see that it cost him more to keep my father in prison than to let him out. We will continue forever if we have to, but I hope that he will make the wise decision and let my father come home. This is Click Here. And one more thing. In mid-July, President Vladimir Putin put an end to Russia's long flirtation with cryptocurrencies. He signed a national law banning them. Russia's always, again, had this kind of concern about the use of the digital currencies because they were difficult to regulate. Roman Sanikov has been tracking cryptocurrencies for years as both a researcher and an analyst. Russia never had a checking system, uh, you know, the way we had in the West, where you can write out a check and send something to someone. Uh, And for a long time, credit cards didn't really function very well. And so they needed to figure out some sort of currency that they would be able to move across borders. And crypto fit the bill, at least for a while. A few months ago, we introduced you to a friend of Click Here named Stanislav, He has a small marketing business in St. Petersburg, Russia. And he'd been talking to us about how he'd been managing to stay afloat despite the world's sanctions against his country. And for a while, he was using crypto. You take some rubles here, rubles here. Uh, You buy some uh, USDT uh, on Binance or other uh, crypto exchange. USDT. That's a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the U.S. dollar. And Binance is an online cryptocurrency exchange. Problem is, that was back in March. By the time we followed up with him again a few weeks ago, Binance had ceased operations for Russians like Stan. And that's presented a problem. Right now, we cannot buy uh, via the website. You cannot buy via Binance. The new law, published on the Russian parliament website in mid-July, appears to be sort of a half-hearted ban. It says you can't transfer or accept digital assets in return for goods or services. But you can buy via peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer. So basically, you know a guy who knows a guy who will trade rubles for crypto. And while you can still do that between bank accounts, it's getting harder. If you want to buy some crypto, buy peer-to-peer. When you are making your transfer to the peer, uh, you can see the message from this bank that we know that you are trying to buy crypto and it's not allowed. So, yes, you can buy, but you can have these problems with, with the bank and they can block the transaction. The law does allow for two things. Stan can still invest in digital assets like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And Russians can still do Bitcoin mining, which at its most basic level is getting a computer to work out a complicated math problem that verifies a transaction. and then earns a small commission. Roman Sanikov explains. 
So in order to accumulate substantial Bitcoin, you basically have to have machines running at pretty much full tilt uh, for a significant amount of time. Russia has relatively inexpensive energy. They also generate a lot of heat um, and need to be cooled significantly. Uh, as funny as they may sound, Russia's climate is kind of beneficial for them in, in that sense. One of the top Bitcoin mining areas in the world? Siberia for exactly that reason. And Putin is recognized as much. Back in January, he said Russia's surplus energy and expertise in Bitcoin mining puts Russia at a competitive advantage. And he's signaled he's unlikely to put a stop to that anytime soon. Here are some of the week's top cyber and intelligence stories. Prosecutors in Germany have issued a warrant for the arrest of a Russian national named Pavel A. That's according to German Public Broadcasting. They allege he's part of Berserk Bear, a hacking group linked to Russia's Federal Security Service, or FSB. And Berserk Bear tends to hack infrastructure, specifically telecoms and power utilities. The warrant wasn't released publicly, but German public broadcasting said that Pavel A. was responsible for cracking into telecom routers. The Justice Department indicted a 36-year-old Russian named Pavel Akulov last year for hacking energy companies around the world. It's unclear if the DOJ indictment is the same guy. Hackers took a bite out of the American Dental Association back in April. The Professional Association for Dentists confirmed in a breach notification letter that it had been the victim of a ransomware attack. Some ransomware researchers say they believe that Black Basta Ransomware Group was behind it. Black Basta tends to use double extortion. They encrypt confidential data they steal, and then they threaten to leak it if their demands are not met. And finally, the federal court's docketing system may have been hacked back in early 2020, according to the Justice Department. DOJ is working very closely with the Judicial Conference and judges around the country to address the issue, according to Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Matthew Olson. He said as much at the House Judiciary Committee last week. Um, this is, of course, a significant concern for us, uh, given the nature of the information that is often held by the courts. Olson said he couldn't think of any specific case that had been affected by the breach. Today's episode was produced by Sean Powers and Will Jarvis, and it was edited by Karen Duffin, with fact-checking from Darren Ancrum. Kendra Hanna is our intern, and Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode. We had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future, and we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.